When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Hossadathon, the podcast that trains apprentices in the films of one of the world's greatest animation directors, Mamoru Hosoda. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and these guys fill the hole in my heart. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Mamoru Hosoda. Jake, Steph, welcome back. Jake, it's such a treat to hear that we're filling the hole in your hearts with these discussions, <laughs> these podcasts, these films. You're holding up okay, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't need to read too much into the opening gag. Um, it'll be a real cry for help uh, another time, I'm sure. But with this filmmaker, I'm, I'm managing through, although maybe that's a spoiler for some of uh, the review section for this one. <laughs> <laughs> Steph, how's the journey going for you? We're now kind of over over the halfway mark, pretty much. Yeah, it's it's going great. Uh, I'm sure in this episode we'll be following in your in your footsteps to learn all the ways of anime, Michael. Yep, Steph and I have kept our microphones covered. Uh, we're only going to be unsheathing them in the last few moments of the conversation. <laughs> it's going to be perfectly bloodless to begin with, though. Yeah. Uh, but we should crack on talking this week about The Boy and the Beast, the fourth film in our mini-series. Uh, well, we should kick off, as we always do, with a synopsis, and then we'll be diving into context and then a spoilery discussion. So listeners, if you haven't had the chance to watch The Boy and the Beast yet, go away and watch it. We'll be here when you come back. But for now, Steph... Should we set up the film? Let's do it. When Kyuta, a young orphan living on the streets of Shibuya, stumbles into a fantastic world of beasts, he's taken in by Kumatetsu, a gruff warrior beast who's searching for the perfect apprentice. Despite their constant bickering, Kyuta and Kumatetsu begin training together and slowly form a bond as surrogate father and son. But when a deep darkness threatens to throw the human and beast worlds into chaos, the strong bond between this unlikely pair will be put to the ultimate test. That's quite that's quite a long and full synopsis there, a lot going on. But Michael, what, what's going on behind the scenes of this film in the context? 
well, big changes in the life of our friend Hosoda. So we spoke um, previously about how he likes to draw inspiration from his own life when dreaming up these projects. Well, not long after he finished work on Wolf Children, he became a dad to a baby boy, and that informed what would become his next film, the one we're talking about today, The Boy and the Beast. I'm going to quote here from an interview uh, that friend of the show, Andrew Osmond, conducted with Hosoda um, about the, the existential journey becoming a father puts you on. Hosoda says... I'm just thinking as a parent, how is he, his son, going to grow up? How are we going to raise him? How is he going to relate to the world? Is he going to be able to find a soulmate or some master from whom he can learn about life? The story about a parent and a child is such a banal theme. I used to think that I couldn't make a movie out of it because it just was too ordinary. But now in our modern times, I feel this is really the time to reevaluate what family means and what it means to the child especially as the child might grow up thinking that the family was a certain way. As they grow up, the time comes when children start asking themselves about family and values. There is a gap between those two trains of thought. So I wanted to reflect on that through the film. And then as the idea developed, more uh, more ideas, of course, came to mind. This is uh, from a, an interview that he gave with Funimation, the distributor, when the film came out, as it developed, he said, I watched my child, who was about a year old at the time, maybe, and he was growing gradually bigger. And I imagined, and as I imagined him growing up, I thought of the idea for this movie. I thought, how much influence do I, as a father, have in my child's growth? How necessary is the father? Having just done the ultimate mum movie, he now wants to do the dad movie. (laughs) In fact, there are many others beside myself who, as my son grows up, will become like parents to him. And from that, I imagined a young man with lots of different parents around him. And when I pictured that image, a story gradually emerged from it. And out of that, characters were born. So he reflects on that by developing a theme brought over from Wolf Children, that sense of being in between two worlds, two identities, and coming of age and asking the question, which world do you belong to? neither both and the boy in this film cuter has to ponder that as he grows up between having the first portion of his life in the real world with a family that he's estranged from and then this new family set up in a fantasy world and then back again hosada has many returning collaborators on this project lots of names we've mentioned before andrew jojo and the art design daisuke Iga on costumes and character design Takaki Yamashita as animation director, character designer, but one name doesn't return for this project, and that's Satoku Okudera, the screenwriter. And this is the first feature that we've discussed so far that Hosoda wrote solo by himself, story and screenplay, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that very shortly. The film was released July the 11th, 2015 in Japan, and it's a massive hit. It knocks Avengers Age of Ultron off the top spot at the box office, sells half a million tickets in its opening weekend, and goes on to become the second highest grossing Japanese film at the box office at the end of the year. In fact, it's only outgrossed by a spin-off of the Yokai Watch anime series, and two Hollywood productions beat it at the box office that year. So, Jake... 2015 there's a disney animation and a franchise reboot that are the two top film well two films that outgross the boy and the beast animation moana nope Ooh. uh zootopia nope um oh god 2015 disney 
what was Disney it's, up to? it's not really one that I, I'd say out of the recent run of Disney features, probably not the one that's remembered the most, but it is a secret Marvel comics adaptation. Oh, Big Hero 6. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. actually character design there was um, by Jin Kim, who would work later on Bell, which we'll talk about in a couple of episodes time. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot about Big Hero 6. That was a nice film. There's going to be a Baymax yeah. film or is it a series? Something. I think it's Something a Disney Baymax. Plus series. Yeah. <laughs> Franchise reboots. Steph, do you have any ideas of a franchise reboot 2015? One of the highest grossing films of all time, I think. Oh. <laughs> Perhaps out of proportion to the specific quality of this film. Hmm. I mean, there's been so many in the past years. It's hard to know. 2015. This film has had a sequel since then. And I think a further sequel has already been shot to come out next year. Ooh. Um... Clearly, 2015, Steph and I were not paying attention to the box it's, office. I really was not. And this is, I like, was... one of the biggest films of the year, and neither of us can get it. But, Jake, you, you are a fan of Steven Spielberg. Mm, I am. And who is the natural successor to Steven Spielberg? It's Colin Trevorrow. Oh, God. Is it Jurassic World? Wow. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> that was a big movie we, we tend to forget. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was huge. And th- yeah, the third one is next year. Gosh. Wow. <laughs> Clearly we love them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, let's hope... The, the Tra- Trevorrow series <laughs> incoming next year. <laughs> let's hope that The Boy and the Beast had more of a lasting impact <laughs> on the both of you than Jurassic World. <laughs> One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, almost over the halfway point, picking up steam, we have actually getting a gaining sense of who Hoster is as a filmmaker. We have the motifs, the recurring themes. Jake, anything different or new about The Boy and the Beast as we sit down to watch it? 
Yeah, I think this looks surprisingly different to the previous films. I think there's there's a bit of a continuity between them, even though the setting between Wolf Children and the other films is very different. I think you can really track the through line between them stylistically. I think this one feels like the largest step away from that. Um, I think like from a technical craft perspective, he's introducing more 3D camera moves or virtual camera moves. And so right at the opening, you've got this like almost flame firework display of all of the beasts being represented in their more spiritual form. And it's lovely. It's almost like this, um, like a musical overture to the whole film um, where it's all just kind of sound and light and this grand narration uh, guiding you through all of these lovely lights in the dark. And I thought that was really lovely. And that, that gets revisited, this spinning, swirling movement, which has got to be an absolute nightmare to animate. Um, <laughs> And he does it again in the real world, um, in the middle of uh, Shibuya Crossing, where all, all of these people kind of spinning around the camera. And again, uh, the, the animators must have absolutely hated their director for that moment, but it does look really amazing. Um, just like these streams and streams of people coming from all directions. Uh, so that looks really cool. And then color-wise, I think this is a real change. I think it's got a real autumnal color palette. Lots of browns, maroons, reds. Um, both in the beast world and in the real world so it, it gives it a kind of a warmer feeling but a more melancholy feeling as well I think um, and you've got slightly thinner outlines on all the characters so I wonder if that along with the colours is more of an approach to try and ground this more in reality I think particularly in the real world city that's the closest that we've seen him do like a more kind of tangible city feeling even though we have seen him do that before this felt the most lived in in that respect for me his his films so far have been mostly not suburban go through that time is sort of like that that urban suburban feeling um not fully suburban it still feels like a pretty big town mm -hmm. setting but this is like in the thick of it, yeah. of the densest populated area of Tokyo, the Shibuya Crossing. And he says in interviews that he feels that the pure energy of that crossing is the sort of thing that could be a gateway between worlds because it is almost like this coming together of all these international tourists and people. And It's interesting that he chooses for his characters to kind of uh, part ways in Girl Who Left Through Time on Shibuya Crossing as well. He's kind of bringing us back to that that space again. Well, and it's a great location for this kind of continuing theme of isolation and loneliness that we see through all of these films. Um, it makes total sense to put that as what is essentially the most recognised busy pedestrian setting in the entire world uh, that is just chock full of people all the time. Uh, and so I think, yeah, it gives it a nice little bit of gravity to put your, your lonely people in that setting. Yeah, this film, there's something interesting about this is that Story-wise, it's the first time where he's had a firmer foot in a fantasy world rather than in the real world. The Girl Leapt Through Time and Wolf Children both have sci-fi or fantasy motifs in what is quite an everyday setting. Summer Wars has the cyber sci-fi mm. um, conceit on top of a real-world setting as well. It made me think of Neil Gaiman, particularly Neverwhere, which is a Neil Gaiman story about a mythological world that exists through the cracks of London where all of the um, 
you know, historical, mythological, legendary characters and creatures live, and it's one that is um, almost accessed by a a homeless population is the is the route into that. So that that sort of starting point here about having a homeless boy who is a or a boy who's run away from home being able to f- move between these worlds is quite fascinating in a way and that's something quite different for for Hosoda to, to explore having a fully realized fantasy world what did you make of that Jake uh, I thought it it really felt familiar uh, to a lot of eastern fantasy stories particularly when we get into the beast world which really has a southern European North African design to it uh, and so I was thinking of Chittagatse, the fantasy world in the second His Dark Materials book, uh, but also because you're being led by the Lord, who is a white rabbit, uh, and you're kind of being drawn into this world by fantastical creatures, you can't help but think of Alice in Wonderland as well. Um, And for anyone that uh, had the pleasure of seeing the great exhibition manga at the British Museum a few years ago, um, one of the big threads through the design of that entire exhibition was the role of the white rabbit and Alice in Wonderland and its influence on manga and anime. Uh, and so I, I yeah, kept thinking about this and like thinking about how that fantasy setting perhaps makes this uh, more of an international story as well. Like It just felt so familiar um, being in those settings because that's just perhaps what we're used to from stories like uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe or something like that, where it is this, this, this kind of tangible setting of uh whether it's a wardrobe or whether it's just a city street it's not a big time warp situation it is this feeling of fantasy being right on your doorstep which is something we spoke about with the cat returns i know we're not big on that film but the idea that this magical world can just be found if you walk down the right streets of your city uh, uh makes it so exciting that like any, any kid could stumble into the beast world is really cool uh but i do think that going out to write on his screenplay by himself, perhaps he could have done with someone <laughs> someone there with him to stop having as many ideas as he did. <laughs> <clears throat> Should we break down the ideas in this film? We've done so far, we've, we've said almost in every episode so far, haven't we, that he likes to have his personal level, his conceptual level, and maybe multiple... Uh, mezzanine levels in between as well but what's at play here with the boy and the beast the context we talked about an exploration of family an exploration of being a father or at least a father figure but also being a son um so uh, jake what's the anatomy of this film there for you god well (laughs) yeah i i think there's the there is a simpler version of this story that is a much better film but i think he he can't help himself with when he has an idea and he just shoves it into like a double album worth of songs and you just need someone to strip it back i think uh maybe just leave it at even the demo tape but this is got your your kid whose family are broken apart because of divorce and death um in a really really heavy-handed intro with like social worker characters going you remember that your family are divorced and that we cannot <laughs> and there's lots of dialogue like, like that that kind of um didactic performance throughout um so he ends up in this fantasy world and then in the fantasy world he gets trained by the beast but then the beast doesn't like him and then very quickly the beast does like him and it kind of turns on a dime a bit but then he's back in the real world 
after spending nine years there and he doesn't seem to care that much like you think after nine years away you'd react a bit strongly but then he gets really into education and wants to go to college but then he has to go back to the beast world where there's a big fight but then there is also another human in the beast world who has lost a piece of his heart and is because of that he's going to destroy the beast world and the normal world and then there's a big fight that crosses both of them and it's just like this is only a two-hour film with credits. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, on on separate levels, all of those ideas are really interesting. But then, yeah, stuck together, it's oh God, like, and then whoa, there's, there's this is so much. Reconnecting with the dad, which I totally forgot. As oh, well. yeah. Yeah. It's just like it's slotted in there. Yeah. Crazy. I think there's a really great, that central thing about uh, Kumatetsu the Beast and Q to the Boy like learning from each other and that kind of central thing about how to raise kids and I think how to how fathers should raise sons particularly is really really interesting when it kind of drills down into that and there's so much in the first half that's that's really good about all of that stuff and I just wanted to see that for longer like there's there's so much about um strength not necessarily just being physical and I think it definitely in terms of, I mean, I don't have sons or children, but like in terms of raising boys, it seems like a very particular thing to be focused on. Like where does strength come from? It's not necessarily just being able to beat someone up. It's not necessarily resolving your issues with physical violence. And there's a really lovely sequence where they go to all the different lords of the land to learn about what strength is and, and they get a lot of different answers and, well, cuter learns from it, but I don't that think it should be like a really does, long but... scene. Like that scene is so beautiful. Yeah. Like all of those settings are amazing. <laughs> they put in so much work to design these different lords, design their different realms. And we rattle through it in about two minutes because we've yeah. got to go and do another training montage and then get back into our apocalyptic battle. And it's like, like the central philosophies being discussed here are the most interesting bit. Like stay here mm. for a while. Come on. Mm. <laughs> I do wonder, he's a filmmaker. We, we've seen this even within the episodes we've we've done, I wonder if we'll see this even in the rest of the miniseries. He likes to challenge himself. He likes to bring something new to the table. And I wonder whether after he did become a father and had those, yeah, that existential development process, having a kid and thinking about himself and the way that it puts yourself in, in a continuum of experience, a continuum of, of, of influential people within the life of this small child. Maybe he wanted to put that into a film, but didn't want to just do Wolf Children 2. Mm-hmm. So you can see how flipping the metaphor from being the kids of the animals or the beasts to the father figures a beast is like a one step away from that. And then he keeps adding things to try and make something new and challenge himself, which is a commendable thing, but maybe just one thing too many. And you're you're right, it's, it is the strongest when it is about these relationships. But he's also very clearly wanting to challenge himself on a genre level, doing something much more action based. Um, he's he talks a lot in interviews about how much he loves Akira Kurosawa's films. So there's a lot of an exploration of a particular type of character that you see in there. Toshiro Mifune's kind of um, wild Ronin character that is clearly what the Beast is um, is based on here, and then all these other type of male 
character archetypes because it's easy the, the, the English title is The Boy and the Beast so that is the central relationship it's on the poster but when you hear him speak about all of the other people that have an impact on us as we grow he's clearly talking about the the other blokes the other animals mm. that live with him like the monk-like kind of humanoid guy with a pig nose or the more monkey type character you know the monk is a pillar of strength and patience and calm the monkey guy is like the ultimate edgelord sarcastic mm. guy and it's more the monk actually that it, it gives him some important life lessons about how to center himself and observe the world around him and that is something that he then allows him then through mirroring um, the beast's movements and learning how the beast ticks he can then get in get under his armor that way but then as you say the the this other aspect which is the may for me the one bridge too far is the let's call it Chekhov's darkness hmm. where very early on they say we can never train a human uh, in the ways of of, 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 our, of of our spirituality and our martial arts because they have darkness inside and it's sort of um very familiar to I guess a, from a lot of other anime series and films there's this idea that teenage you know teenagers go crazy it's it's there in akira onwards um that if you give teenagers any power particularly boys they'll go mad and go drunk with that power um and it's i guess the expectation is that cuter will go that way but actually it's this other very clearly a human that is meant to be a surprise or a twist reveal when it turns out they are human later on and that's one thing too many because also it just feels like a very different sort of theme and motif to explore again very on the nose nail on head visually expressed literal gaping hole in their chest um but but not really given that extra dimension or wisdom that we would associate with Hoster at this point maybe well, and, it, and it doesn't have the the grounding in its style or the grounding in its theme uh, in reality, that even though this is a, a beast world, um, the rest of the film really has. Like, even when you are like there with a monk with a pig nose and a monkey man, like you really feel everything that they're saying, um, and it exists in a world that is tangible. And then the look of this hole in the heart and this kid with his, his big wide eyes and his gaping mouth and his like, explosive behaviour, I suppose... Uh, just doesn't seem like a fit and it just feels so tacked on and it comes in at a 90 minute mark and it's like the film could have just wrapped up here like we, we i feel like all the emotional lessons we needed to learn we hit at this point but we just needed to blow something up in the last half an hour and that's something that we've talked about throughout this series already and something what we may well go on to talk about is just having to raise those stakes unnecessarily mm. I guess, yeah, what I was, I mean, I feel like there's not much point in me saying kind of, they should have done this with the story or whatever, because the film is the film. But um, I guess what I was expecting the conclusion to be was this cuter choosing between his, like, blood relative, like his dad, or Kumatetsu, his dad, who is technically his dad, because he raised him throughout most of his childhood, and... I guess like either having to compromise between the two or like say goodbye to one and return to the human world, which is kind of where the story felt like it was going when he was getting more interested in going to school and reading Moby Dick and stuff like that. Um, Yeah. So it was quite kind of a weird 
shock for for the story to kind of turn in that direction when I feel like it was building to a, a really emotional conclusion um, where it was going already. Absolutely. It felt like for 90 minutes, it could be like a fantasy animated version of a Coriander film. Like mm-hmm. that you've got this mm. arguably very melodramatic family situation going on that could be kind of a, a high wire act in the hands of another filmmaker, but feels very much real. Um, and that reunion with the dad, where the dad is very gentle and isn't trying to like immediately cover his son in as much love as possible. He's, like, they realise that they just need to take things kind of as they go, and he's very much like offering him kind of autonomy, independence to take his own life in his own hands. And all of that's really lovely. I think these two have a really interesting dynamic, and that's what I want to see explore. And how do you negotiate the two sides of this family? But instead, we've got a whale, a very beautiful whale, it has to be said, exploding <laughs> on top of Shibuya. The approach we take to these series, it's always quite interesting when we reach this point where we really feel like we know a filmmaker. And this is a very rare example, for me at least, where we can see a filmmaker wrestling with their ideas and maybe not cohering them in a way that we may now ex- have expected from the previous episodes. So and that, that the lack of Satoko Okudera feels significant to me and hearing in the previous episodes where she would say that he'd come with like his barrel of ideas and she would have to shape it into something or she'd do a pass of the screenplay, he'd do a pass and then come together and then finally do a pass together. Um, it feels like there is a version of this film, and again, Steph, we're going into the fan fiction territory where it, we're talking about the film that doesn't exist, but it could have just been about the relationship between him and the boy and the beast. The beast dies, and then he gives him the sword that is in his, in his heart, and that's all that is, is, is necessary, that human story at the centre of it about loss and memory and the impact of these people in our lives. But he's wrestling with how to then give the boy something active to finish with rather than just have that passive feeling or maybe it is going back into wolf children territory where he he needs something to end with so it's really fascinating to see him just sort of like throwing that twist in the narrative late on to have a different type of action that really muddies the whole sword metaphor as well which i think is really beautifully laid out for so long like this idea of a world where there once were swords that people used to hurt each other but then a law was put in place where they had to remain sheathed at all times and that it was taboo to actually show the kind of the the metal of a sword like that's that's a lovely piece of world building it makes you think well Mm. like what happened however many years ago for that to be in place and so when you do see a sword do what a sword can do you really feel it like that mm. moment where the beast gets stabbed is it's shocking and really well put together a lot like when daddy wolf in wolf children gets hit you <laughs> it's a proper kind of gut punch moment but then when you get to the big whale fight and he gets the sword in the heart and the sword in the heart is a nice metaphor and we've kind of had this pacifist trajectory throughout but then he wins the fight by using the sword. And then someone says, did he kill him? And he said, no, but we didn't see how we didn't actually. <laughs> All we know is that in the end, the sword won the fight. And that 
goes against the philosophy that we've just been told about for 110 minutes. And if you just, again, <laughs> if we're in the editing room, we can just go and go back to 90 minutes and just stitch stitch our ending right there. Um, yeah, it is, it is frustrating. But it's, it's really fascinating to see someone who is clearly obsessed with these same things just come back over and over again. Uh, we will come back to Wales again in Bell and these wolves, which we've seen before, these beasts, mm-hmm. beasts which we'll see again in Bell. Um, <laughs> it is really interesting how he he seems to alter his feelings as he goes as well. Like here, a whale mm. is a beautiful thing, but it is representative of, kind of this weapon of mass destruction as well. But then we've seen a whale be something far nicer. And then in Bell, we'll see it kind of be a speaker system that can <laughs> connect the entire world. It, it's... It's really interesting because I suppose it's not often so on the level that you can just track someone's interests like that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of reminiscent of our Satoshi Kon miniseries, I feel like, where we've had similar themes being presented throughout the films as the filmmaker is working through these ideas and kind of um, developing what they want those ideas to turn into film after film. Um for me, this is yeah very much that, especially in indirect conversation with wolf children, just in terms of wolf children is so much about, you know, your kids will grow up to be their own people. They'll leave you behind and go off into the world. And then this is very much like, oh, you actually have so much influence over who your kids become and how they behave. And you have to learn to teach them. And it's like a really interesting thing to see him make I guess after he's just had a child and maybe realized that, yeah, parenting isn't this like one straight line and you just follow that and that's your, that's your goal for 18 years or whatever. It's like, there's so much other stuff coming in. Well, I think, and it's also, I think it's really cool that the film like gives dialogue on both sides of that interaction of what it means to be a child. It's not just Hosseda as a new father kind of projecting his concerns about what's going to come for him in the next 18 years or so. He's gives cuter, like some of the analysis as well. Like what does it mean to be someone's child? Like what is my role in this transaction, in this, this relationship? What do I need to do for them and vice versa? And ultimately it's about what the beast gets from the boy in the end. Like it doesn't really matter the other way around. It's not like the boy obviously gets something from the beast and the sword in the heart. But the big learning curve for me is what the beast gets out of the boy. And in a way that 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 arc ends at that three quarter mark. And that's the most rewarding arc. And that's probably why all of us feel that that kind of back end feels so empty because we no longer have a connection between this character and the character he's been put up against. Because it's that duo that we want to see. I fi- what I find so fascinating about him as a filmmaker and going through the films chronologically in the way that we are is how he situates himself within the narrative as, a, as the storyteller. So we talk in the past about how Miyazaki would always be paternalistic, you know, quite didactic at times, always giving life lessons, and contrasted that with Hiramasa Yonabayashi in something like When Marnie Was There, where he is Anna, 
he is outside of the small circle that is drawn invisibly around society and you're the outsider within that and i think hosada resituates himself almost with every film as he gains life experience and there's something quite profound there in the way that wolf children is his idealized version of parenthood looking at his friends who are parents and saying god you're so cool doing this in your mm-hmm. life and these kids are these unruly animals in your house that you've got to to bring up um but then a couple of years later he flips and actually the beast the unruly animal is himself that that is being taught and developed and matured by the process of being a parent and we'll just see that keep going as we go through the films it's you know we've talked jake both on mic and off mic about steven spielberg and how his filmmaking changed when he became a parent but i think that with hosseter it's more subtle but quite profound the changes he goes through. I really love that scene where he's um he's trying to teach him how to uh control the the sword properly and he just keeps repeating the same thing like but louder <laughs> like why don't you understand this like it's it's such a good kind of yeah depiction of just not knowing how to teach in that way, like a very much like got, got from a different perspective. Got the bonnet of the car open, and Dad is just telling you to hold the torch in the right spot. <laughs> it's just like no, there, no, there, no, it's there. Um, but yeah, um, you you mentioned his name, Michael. Um, just on the Spielberg point, we we mentioned him a few weeks ago on, in the same series about this. Um, kind of Hosseter's skill as a blocker and as a silent filmmaker and I think you really get this here I think some of the sequences in this film that are the strongest are when you remove that dialogue I think the dialogue is iffy I think it's perhaps his poorest script in that regard but once you remove that these sequences where we said in Wolf Children where it's the pregnancy sequence or like the growing up sequence here we see those nine years of Cuter's life in the beast world kind of whip through in five minutes but it's so gentle and you really feel that passage of time in such a beautiful way and it's not just it's telling you so much of that story in such a short space of time just using the visual element but then it's also in the combat sequences which we haven't really seen him do before i think you get a real clear geography in all of those sequences i think you feel every punch they're really long and so you get a proper oomph out of them. The first one between the two main beasts, uh, which is kind of in a town square, that's almost like creeping up to 10 minutes long, that fight. It's crazy. It reminded me of the one from They Live, the John Carpenter film, where it just keeps going. You think they're done and it never stops. But you really feel it. Like They have such a great arc. Like A good fight sequence should have this beginning, middle and end, and it should have like a few different acts in between and like the... Like the moment when you think they're down and out and they get back up and someone shouts on the crowd and all of this. It's like these mini Rocky films that are <laughs> planted in it. And I think he, yeah, he's so good at just planting you as the viewer in these spaces, whether that is in the space of a home or whether that is in the space of a coliseum. Well, we're going to have to put the boy and the beast in the middle of the coliseum <laughs> of the Hoss order and see how it jukes it out with the films we've discussed so far. Let's see how it shapes up. Okay, we need to rank the Hosseter films so far. 
Jake, let's quickly recap your list and where this would come within it. Uh, so I was going Summer Wars, Wolf Children, Girl Who Leapt Through Time. And I would put this below the Girl Who Leapt Through Time for me. Uh, it's just it's just his most uneven, most unsatisfying and least emotional work. But that being said, I still think it's very good. <laughs> <laughs> I will agree with you yeah so Summer Wars Wolf Children Girl Who Let Through Time and then The Boy and the Beast there is just this um, this this glaring flaw structurally one idea too many that makes it two hours long and feels half an hour too long for mm. me although so much to love particularly uh, oh, Jake just hearing you talk about the fight sequences just then made me want to go back and watch that first one again so it's not it's at the bottom of the table, but it's by no means a terrible... Hey, Michael, as, the, as they say in the Premier League, it's still top four. <laughs> yeah. exactly, it's still yeah. getting a Champions still League get... spot. <laughs> <laughs> Steph, uh, where would this land for you? Uh, I'm realising that I have completely different opinions on these films to you guys. I think maybe I'm more of like a slice of life Hossida lover because my uh, ranking is Wolf Children top, then Girl Who Leapt Through Time, then Summer Wars. Um, I would put Boy and the Beast probably third above summer wars um, oh, we're totally opposed I think this, yeah. we really are and like i think i mean there's like there's that really good like action in summer wars and i think this builds on it and you have those amazing fight scenes and i just think that yeah the central relationship has a lot to love in it um and i feel like this is one that i will probably return to and rewatch and reassess so yeah wow the yeah the, the schism mm. In, <laughs> in the podcast team let's see how that how that grows or narrows as things go on but listeners it would be amazing to hear what you make of Hossida's films particularly The Boy and the Beast let us know on Twitter at Ghibliatech we're also on Instagram Ghibliatech.pod and you can email us Ghibli at little.studios.com we're also on social media individually you can find Steph on Twitter underscore Steph Watts you can find Jake on Twitter at JKH Cunningham. And you can find Michael at Michael J. Leader. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is by Anthony Ng, and the show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.